0: Chapter 1, Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Romans together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you wave to them, they'll spot you and put a Bible into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. He wants everyone to own a Bible and to know the Bible. Romans chapter 1, we come uh, this morning to verse 18. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were unthankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and you're the only one who in this whole world that says what you do and lord as the creator you are uniquely qualified uh, to speak and to speak truth in the world and into our lives and so we're thankful for places like this and to be able to turn off the world the indoctrination the uh, the conforming pressure of all of it, and to come solely under the, the weight, Lord, and the influence of your Word in a heavenly perspective. We pray that you'd speak to each of us in our lives this morning through these handful of verses, and we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit to uh, be accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In chapters uh, one through three of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul uh, uses those chapters to establish the guilt of uh, all of mankind before God, both Jew and Gentile alike, uh, and thus uh, being guilty before God, deserving of his righteous judgment. And the Apostle Paul establishes our guilt before God in these chapters for the simple reason that if I'm not fully aware, Uh, of my guilt before God, if I'm not fully aware of my need for salvation and the forgiveness of my sins, then I will fail to pay any attention to the provision of God for the forgiveness of my sins found in the gospel, that is, in Jesus' death, His burial, and in His resurrection. In chapter 1, Paul focuses specifically upon the guilt of the Gentile world. And a Gentile is simply a non-Jew. There are Jews and there are Gentiles uh, in the world. And so, he's establishing the guilt of the Gentile, non-Jewish world before God. And last week, we began this section by studying the wrath of God, that God's wrath is a part of God's righteousness, that He could not be righteous if He ignored sin or He condones sin if He did not indeed judge sin. We also noticed in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what his wrath is, uh, in a general sense, is uh, focused upon is first the word uh, ungodliness that refers to our sins that we commit against God, and then unrighteousness referring to those sins that we commit against our fellow man. All of this is in line with the two tablets of the law of Moses in the Old Testament, where the first tablet had to do uh, with commandments related to our relationship with God, and then the second tablet with our relationship relationships with our fellow man, and uh, Paul is establishing the fact that all of us, each of us, have broken uh, both of those, uh, each of the tablets two tablets of the law. In verses 19 through 23, Paul expands now his focus of the wrath of God from kind of the generalness of uh, ungodliness and unrighteousness to focus upon three very specific sins— that uh, provoke the wrath of God, and these sins, interestingly enough, are very, very contemporary. There's a, uh, they are as contemporary uh, an issue today in the United States of America as ever they were uh, 2,000 years ago. And these three things that uh, garner and, and, uh, and gain the wrath of God that we we'll look at this morning is, number one, the denial of the existence of God, verses 19 and 20, uh, the suppression of the truth and righteousness, the latter part of verse 18, and then idolatry as he speaks about it in verses uh, 21 to 23. So, we begin with the denial of the existence of God. And here, Paul lets us know in verses 19 and 20 that there's no excuse for anyone not believing in the existence of God, and not in any God, but believing in the existence of the Creator God, who is the God of the Bible. That while He, he lays out the fact that while God is Himself invisible to us. His existence, His eternal power, His Godhead, that is, His divine nature, is manifested uh, in His creation. And Paul argues for the existence of God, and this occurs throughout the entire Bible. He argues for the existence of God on the basis of creation, on the basis of the physical world that is all around us that all of creation around us testifies to the existence of a creator, to the existence of God. All of this is exactly as King David wrote by the Spirit of God in the Old Testament in Psalm 19. Uh, Let me read a portion of it to you. David wrote, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork." Day unto day, speaking of this creation, it utters speech, and night unto night it reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through the, the, all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he ha- has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circle it to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And David, as he states here, uh, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his uh, handiwork. And what he's saying is that the sun, the moon, the stars, all of it testify not only to God's existence, that's just the starting point but it speaks to God's power. It speaks to his greatness. It speaks to his glory. That the creation that exists around us all day, every day, that he says day unto day it utters speech in other words every day it's communicating something intended to communicate something to every single human being in this room and in the world night unto night he said it reveals knowledge every night it is teaching us something he declared that there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard this message that there is a creator Behind the creation, every day it communicates to every single individual in the world in a language that they understand. He went on to say that their line is gone through all the earth, their words to the end of the earth. In other words, this great truth is communicated equally to all of the world, whether we consider it to be first world or third world or however urban it might be or however rural it might be. And he declared, and what, all all of creation communicates all day, every day to every part of the world. What is the communication of the creation? It's a very simple message. There is a God, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God. And why does creation speak of a creator and a God who has created all of this? And the line of logic that Paul uses here is that everywhere you look in life, uh, creation speaks of a creator whether it is a house or a bridge or a watch or a poem or a painting. And whenever we see any of these things, even in all of their great diversity, uh, we see these things, we realize that they didn't just happen. They didn't just spontaneously occur in human uh, history, but that they exist because someone created them. Anywhere you want to look, anywhere in life, always there is a creator behind any creation. And what is true, the Bible says, of a house or a watch is also true of the heavens and the earth. And when we look at the the heavens and the earth and everything in them, it speaks to us of a creator. And in the same way that when we look at the heavens and the earth, everywhere that we look in life, uh, when we see design— We realize that there is a designer behind that design. Design always speaks to a designer behind uh, the design. And whether it's speaking of Mount Rushmore or whether we're talking about a jet or whether we're talking about an iPhone, and no one in their right mind would deny it. No one would claim that an iPhone is self-existent or that an iPhone has, uh, you know, designed itself into uh, existence. No, clearly there is a designer behind it. And what the Bible declares is that what is true of that design, the design of, of an iPhone, is also true of the far greater design that is exhibited in the world around us all of the seasons of life, the night, the day, uh, the tides of, uh, of life, the orbit of the sun and the moon and so forth. And not only does creation and design speak of the existence of a creator and a designer, But just as the creator and the designer is greater than anything he or she ever creates or designs, that God is greater than all of the creation that we see on a daily basis. And this is why it is foolish to ever stop in the thought progression and ever spend a moment of time in our life worshiping the creation. Whatever form that it might take, uh, if the Creator is greater than His creation, and He is, then He alone is to be worshipped. And what is true of the universe is also true of the marvelous creation and design uh, 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 that is found in the human body, or the design that we see not merely with a telescope, but the design that opens up to us uh, uh, under the, you know, the sight of the microscope. Uh, Dr. Paul Brand, a very famous co-author of the famous book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, he was a pioneer in developing tendon transfer Uh, techniques for use in the hands of those with leprosy. This is something he committed his life to. And he wrote how the design of just the human hand is a powerful witness uh, to the existence of God. He wrote this. He said, I could fill a room with volumes of surgical textbooks that describe operations people have devised for the human hand different ways to rearrange the tendons, muscles, and joints, thousands of operations. But I don't know of a single operation anyone has devised that has succeeded in improving a normal hand. It is beautiful all the techniques are correct uh, to uh, all the uh, techniques to correct the deviance uh, the one hand in a hundred that is not functioning is god design there is no way to pr- improve on the hand god gave us i concur with isaac newton who said in the absence of any other proof the thumb alone would convince me of god's existence I remember several years ago now picking up the Modesto B newspaper, a hard copy of it. It It's been a long time since I've had a hard copy of it in my hand. Uh, I regret that because I like crossword puzzles. But I remember seeing an article within it. And it was entitled, Noted Atheist Changes Mind About God. Well, this kind of thing uh, gets my attention, of course, and so I read the article. It was written of uh, world-famous Anthony Flew. Uh, who spent uh, most of his life proclaiming a lack of evidence for God while teaching at Oxford and Aberdeen and and reading uh, universities in Britain and also in visits to uh, numerous U.S. and Canadian campuses and and all of his books and his articles and lectures and debates and so forth. He was uh, one of the leading proponents and spokespersons for uh, atheism and agnosticism at the time. And uh, he, the first three paragraphs of the article stated, a British philosophy professor who has been a leading champion of atheism for more than half a century has changed his mind. He now believes in God, more or less, based on scientific evidence and says so in a video uh, released Thursday. At age 81, after decades of insisting that belief is a mistake, Anthony Flew has concluded that some sort of intelligence or first cause must have created the universe. A superintelligence is the only explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature, Flew said, in England. And what impacted him, uh, Mr. Flew, concerning all of this was the investigation of DNA by biologists, which he declared, and I quote, that it is shown by the almost uh, it is shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved he also declared it has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of the evolution of the first reproducing organism And what changed Mr. Flew's mind, exactly what King David wrote 3,000 years ago in Psalm 19 and that Paul declares here, the evidence of creation to a creator and of design to a designer behind that design. And King David was convinced of all of this in looking at the heavens as a shepherd boy and later as a king, looking at the sun and the moon and the stars and the orbits and all of it Professor Flew was convinced by the evidence found in DNA. And in fact, the witness of creation and design within the universe to the existence of God is so strong. That David concluded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 19. In fact, he begins the psalm with the line uh, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Whatever might be, you know, kind of the assessment of mankind and us exchanging our own kind of feeble ideas among one another, from the vantage point of heaven, it is almost unbelievable. It is certainly astonishing that a person could go all the way through life and uh, uh, miss God and miss the witness uh, to God that is found in creation and design. And Paul, uh, he he communicates it as strongly as David ever did here in verse 20, declaring that there's simply no excuse for not believing in the existence of God, and specifically uh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, uh, and indeed the God of the Bible. Now, the second focus of Paul's wrath, as it's mentioned here, is at the end of verse 18, and what Paul describes as the suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. Paul is stating something in that very short phrase. He's stating several things that are very, very important to understand, always uh, in, in human history, but vitally important for us to understand, uh, anyone to understand, but for us to understand as Christians living in the year 2017. It's important to recognize that the, the suppression of the truth that he's talking about here is not truth in general. Uh, the context is, is that he is talking about the deliberate suppression of the truth about God, and again, specifically, the God of the Bible, uh, and it is, he's, he's addressing the suppression of the truth about the fact that he exists. The second thing uh, that is important to notice here is the Greek word that is used uh, for suppress, Greek being the original language uh, of most of the New Testament. The Greek word for uh, suppress, it means to hold down. It means to hinder. It means to prevent or to forcefully restrain. Uh, the word is intended to produce an image within our mind. It speaks of having to press down with force against something that is ex- uh, exerting a counterforce. Uh, someone has put it this way. Imagine a giant steel spring which would take the full weight of a human being to hold that spring down, to press it uh, down. And if the person moved, even for a second, the spring would shoot up. And Paul is declaring that that is the great effort that many people put into uh, attempting to deny the existence of God, and how that despite all of their great effort, at the core, they know they are fighting a losing battle, that the truth about the existence of God cannot be suppressed indefinitely. The third thing that Paul, uh, in this speaks here, and this is absolutely priceless. Here you have, in this half of a verse, in verse 18, you have the Holy Spirit revealing to us the motivation behind this suppression of truth about the existence of God, the God of the Bible that the suppression of that truth behind it is always uh, the endeavor to protect the practice of some area of of unrighteousness or sin in the lives of, of those who suppress that truth because they recognize that if God exists, then that by virtue of being created by God, they are then morally accountable to God, but they don't want to be morally accountable to God. And when they read the Bible, and not only about the existence of God, but they read God's definitions of right and wrong. They read God's description of uh, the righteous life that we are to live. They read of his condemnation uh, of sin and of unrighteousness, and that these are things that we're to have nothing to do with. They recognize their problem immediately, and they conclude that the only way That they can then live a self-dominated, a self-directed, a sin-dominated life. The only way that they can attempt to partake in the sins and the unrighteousnesses forbidden in the Bible, and doing so without any sense of guilt or condemnation or a sense of accountability to God, is to deny His existence. And so, they do. And so, they do all day, every day in the face of the witness of His existence and creation around us all day, every day. That is, as Paul brings this out, by the Spirit of God, if you were to dig down and get down to where God sees with absolute clarity, the Bible teaches that everything is open and naked before Him with whom we have to do. He'll say, all of this Uh, thing about the denial of God, it all comes down to the fact that people don't like the implications of it, and they don't want to live the life that God calls us to live, and they don't want to be morally accountable to Him. And it is so important to understand uh, this, that the reason that people deny the existence of God is in order to protect some unrighteousness, some sin that they do not want to give up. And And it's important to understand this because this is what is going on all around us today. The average person does not deny the existence of God as a result of some deep, thorough investigation of God and his claims. People do so simply because they don't like his definitions of right and wrong. They don't like his prohibitions of unrighteousness. And so, atheism and agnosticism or just the regular run-of-the-mill ignoring God, keeping Him out of our consciousness or, uh, you know, letting Him intrude upon our thinking and our life, all of it is rooted in finding an excuse to continue to live the life of sin that I want to live because I don't want to live the life that God commands me to. And that at the core of atheism's or agnosticism's denial of God, at the core of it, Paul is saying here, is not science. It is never science. It is always morality. And it is, more specifically, an issue of immorality. And Jesus taught exactly the same thing, though it's easy to miss sometimes in his teaching. He followed his declaration to Nicodemus, that religious leader, and famous exchange in John uh, chapter 3, and Jesus spoke the most famous verse in all of the Bible in that chapter, "'For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life.'" But Jesus didn't stop there in his exchange with Nicodemus. He then went on and said, and he who believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then here for our purposes this morning, Jesus said, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Again, at the core of all rejection of Jesus, as he declares it here, is darkness, and you can bet everything you own on it, though you won 't see the uh, the receiving of uh, the benefits of that uh, bet in this life it 'll all be exposed in in judgment one day but you can bet on it. The darkness of sin and pride and selfism and self-will and and idolatry, all of that is at the core of it, that a person is not willing to give up uh, yet in their life or ever in their life in order to walk with God and to uh, then follow Him. And it is not all of the excuses that are normally given uh, for rejecting God and the existence of God. And of course... This whole suppression of truth and unrighteousness, the suppression of the truth about God in order to protect the practice of unrighteousness, this is epidemic within our culture. It prevails within our culture. In every area of our culture, in our society, uh, it is uh, represented. Uh, and all of this is, is what is behind the denial uh, of the existence of God within our public school. Uh, within uh, most of our universities within the media within the entertainment industry government the public square Uh, mankind rejects the existence of God because we do not want to be morally accountable to him and if people were honest about it as God sees it clearly that would be the confession and uh, this Today, again, this being epidemic all around us uh, because we're constantly being inundated with all that the atheists have to say about God, and the atheist says this, and the atheist and the agnostic, and this is, you know, very much in fashion within our culture today as the influence of Christianity ebbs within the culture And so, it's important every once in a while to come to a passage like this within the Bible as Christians and here find out what not just what the atheist and the agnostic has to say about God, but what God has to say about the atheist and the agnostic. And when everything is revealed one day, all of this will be revealed to be the truth. Now, finally… God's wrath is revealed against all idolatry, verses 21 to 23. And here you have God's condemnation of idolatry. It's good to understand what idolatry is. We tend to think of idolatry as, you know, some group of people living three or four thousand years ago and having little idols that they would bow down to or altars in some corner of a bedroom and some remote part of the world, in the sophisticated uh, environment of the United States of America, we really don't deal with, uh, you know, idolatry any longer. Idolatry uh, is prevalent everywhere in the world, and maybe uh, no, never more prevalent than in the United States of America. Idolatry, very simply, is the worship of any created thing. There are only two classes, uh, 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 two categories in all of the universe, and everyone and everything in the world and the universe fits within one of these two categories. The first category is creator. And that is a category made up of one. And then there is the second category, the creation. And it is made up of everything else that is not uh, the creator. And, uh, and and so, those are uh, the categories. The creator and then everything that has been created by the creator. Uh, and uh, idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. It is the worship of anything uh, than the worship of the God who created all things. And Paul puts this so perfectly later on in verse 25 of the chapter, which we'll look to get to next uh, week. He declares it to be, the wor- uh, idolatry to be the worship of the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Again, it is always to stop at least one step short in the logical progression. Why would I worship Anything that is made, anything that is created, when the creation is always less than the Creator. I've stopped one stage short of finding the true object of my worship who is worthy of my worship, and that is uh, the Creator. And so, idolatry is the worship of anything that God created rather than uh, God Himself. And why is man so eager to worship uh, the, the uh, creation or to worship, as Paul talks about here, the gods uh, the, that he creates as opposed to uh, uh, the worshiping the Lord? Uh, it's interesting that, uh, to note through history and even into today, when, when man creates a god, uh, unlike the god of the Bible, Uh, That God that he creates will never make uh, demands of him morally uh, that he doesn't want it to make. In fact, if a person's God is closely examined, uh, then you will find that the God that they have created uh, looks remarkably like them. When you look at the Greek gods and the Roman gods of the ancient world, it was essentially the deification of the flesh. Many of them were created just so men, mostly men, could engage in whatever their flesh wanted to do, whether it was sexual immorality or prostitution or paganism or materialism or even anger. These gods were created in order to sanctify these fallen aspects of the nature of man, when man creates a God, he creates a God that uh, does not challenge him morally in, in any way, do, will not hold him accountable uh, morally. Yeah, it's the same thing. You, you talk to anybody today that, you, uh, that doesn't uh, believe in the God of the Bible, and I'm and, uh, just saying it as an observation in, in life, and you go up to them and you ask them, uh, what do you think God is like? And then you wait for the description. And they, the description of what God is like is remarkably like them. The God that they've created likes all of the things that they like and dislikes all of the things that they don't like and, uh, and uh, thinks exactly the way that they think. And it's, it's the deification of the flesh. And, and it is, uh, it is I- idolatry. The Bible teaches that the fact of the matter is that everyone in the world is a worshiper of something or someone of uh, some god. And, uh, and that's what the Bible teaches. Sometimes the atheists or the agnostical protest and say, no, I'm no worshiper at all. As you understand, this is… Um, Represented by the fact that I'm an atheist or an agnostic. I don't, I don't worship God. The Bible doesn't look at it that way. The Bible teaches that everyone is a worshiper of something or someone of some uh, God with a lowercase g. You see, just because a person rejects the God of the Bible, it doesn't mean that that person is without a God in their life. Uh, Practically speaking, there are no atheists in this world. And I think that so often in our culture we hear a great deal about what the atheist declares and who declares that he does not believe in God, and as a result in our, uh, the current fashion of our culture they're thought to be a very intelligent, very intellectual, very much a free uh, thinker and a, a, a critical thinker and enlightened and so forth, superior in every way to any kind of a religious person to be sure. But I think it's very important to understand and to realize that as much as atheists don't believe in the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible does not believe in atheists, because practically speaking, they don't exist, and He knows it. We, every single one of us, are worshipers of something. So, it raises the question, if we're all worshipers, then how in the world do we identify the God that we worship and we serve? And we do so by simply identifying the master passion uh, within our life, by identifying the thing that is captured, my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, the thing that I love more than anything else or anyone else in life. By uh, asking myself, what is it that excites me the most uh, in life? What is it that gets me out of bed every morning to face uh, the day? What do I live for? What do I think about more than anything else in life? Where do I invest my discretionary time? Where does my money go in life? You've heard the old saying follow the money. And uh, following the money can lead to a lot of revelations. One of the revelations that it leads to is identifying what is the master passion within our life. And when I answer those questions, I will have a very good idea as to what my God is in my life, what my master passion is in life. And a master passion can be sin, It can be money, it can be sports, it can be a little pet, a little poodle, Fifi, uh, can arise to that kind of a place in a person's life. It can be power, it can be sex, it can be relationships, it can be food or travel or education, even religion. It can be entertainment or nature or creation or the worst idol of all, it can be our own self. And on and on and on the list uh, uh, could go. But let me close now, as Paul does here, by observing the tragic consequences of idolatry, of the terrible price that is paid to engage in idolatry, to live a life where I'm engaged in the worship of anything or anyone other than the God of the Bible, the true and the living God. And the awful life, as Paul describes it here, uh, that idolatry leads a person into. You notice in verse 21 that as he describes it, that the, the, and he describes it first because it's, it's first in terms of importance, that the greatest tragedy of idolatry is that it denies God the glory that He alone is due in our lives. Uh, And you think about that, Uh, the God who exists, the God who created us, the God uh, who gives us life, the God uh, who numbers our days, the God who the Bible says gives us our very next breath. Imagine having created you and me, and what I then give myself to in the worship in life is some uh, image made in the form of a man or a snake or uh, some kind of a reptile or an ox, or whatever uh, it might be, a bird. Imagine the offense that this is to God, and imagine how it is viewed, not in the insane asylum that is planet Earth, but ha- imagine how that is viewed from the white-hot holiness and sanity of heaven. A, it, it, it is an affront uh, to God, and, uh, and imagine the offense that it is. But, but to, to fail to give God the glory that He is due, to fail to make the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of the Bible, the object of my worship, is to miss the very meaning and the purpose for life. Because each and every one of us have been created for the very purpose of worshiping God. And if we don't worship Him, we will miss the very meaning and purpose of life. In Revelation chapter 4, John describes a scene in heaven, and the four and 20 elders fall down before Him. Uh, that sat upon the throne, and they worship him forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And then here it is For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We have been created to bring honor and glory and pleasure to God. And if I live my life short of what I have been created to do, then life will always be empty. It will always be unsatisfied at its its, uh, core, no matter how full I keep my life or how busy I keep myself. The second tragedy concerning idolatry is also given in verse 21, is that it always results in a a life numbing, uh, li- literally a life crippling uh, lack of thankfulness. And then as a result, uh, a-, a lacking of true joy in life. As he talks about the fact that this idolatry leads to a life, nor were they uh, thankful. And the reason that this is true and the reason that it's significant is because when a person refuses to recognize the creator behind the creation, then there is no sense of gratitude to God for the creation. We simply take all that's around us, the sun, the moon, the seasons, the, uh, the soil, the water, the air, the seed that grows in the soil, etc. We take all of it for granted, and it is to live life as if all of this is owed to me in some way, as if I am worthy of all this that is around me. Very often, the older generation will complain about uh, the younger generation in terms of an entitlement attitude, and I'm not really prepared to debate that this morning. But I am convinced that an entitlement attitude fills the entire world, And, and it fills the life of every human being wherever God is not recognized as the provider of all of this, all of the creation, and then thanked for it, You take the farmer in our context in the Central Valley of California. Here he is, he buys the land, he plants the trees, and then uh, he thinks that because he owns the land and he's done the work out there in the orchard that he doesn't owe anything to anyone else, not even to God. He's a self-made man. He's unthankful to God altogether. But who created the earth that he planted those trees in? Who created the soil? Who created the trees to begin with? Who created the entire cycle of nature that allows that crop to first begin to bud and then to come into full uh, uh, ripeness and fruition and then ultimately to be uh, harvested and then uh, to be sold, all of these things that are created by God and without which the farmer could accomplish nothing. God has pre- provided all of it, and it is a, a crippling thing to go through life and to miss God and all of this and have no gratitude uh, for his creation, what he's provided uh, to us, and and to think all of this is simply because of me. There's no one to thank behind, uh, someone greater than me to thank behind all of it. Here you have the surgeon or the scientist who become uh, successful and often famous in their fields and often become proud and and God-rejecting as a result, unthankful to God. But their success and their fame is not because they've produced any natural law in and of themselves, but they become famous and they become accomplished solely because God has placed law and order within the human body and within nature, and they are merely discovering that law and order and then cooperating with what God has created And the point that I'm making in all of this is without a recognition of God, an entire dimension of thankfulness, in fact, the deepest dimension of thankfulness simply disappears. And it is an awful thing to lose in life. It is a crippling thing to lose in life. As someone has put it, the worst moment for the atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. And it is very, very true. The third thing that Paul uh, makes mention of here is in verse 21, that without God, man becomes futile in their thoughts. And the word futile there means worthless. It means nonsense. It means senseless. It means uh, purposelessness. Uh, No thought And what Paul is bringing out here, no thought, no exercise of the human mind is ever complete. It is never well formed until it involves God, until it involves a conversation with God, a conversation with someone who is greater than us, the someone who has created us, And the failure to engage God, no matter how brilliant a person might be intellectually, the result is an intellectually stunted life because my mind has been denied the very thing that it was created for, to explore the vastness of God— to explore his great truth, to explore the great themes that he has introduced into human uh, history, the realities within life, all that is truly noble and virtuous. All of these things have their origin solely in him. It is to waste a human mind. And then he goes on to speak of the human heart and how dwarfed it becomes as a result of identity. Idol- Idolatry when it is denied the worship of the true and the living God. In verse 21, when he says, their foolish hearts were darkened. Here you have the emotional price for idolatry, the emotional price that people pay for living life independent of the God of the Bible. And it results in an emotionally stunted life. Imagine, imagine as a Christian, we We're mortified by it because we have experienced the beauty of of this. But imagine denying the human heart the opportunity to worship God, to sing praises to God, to allow the human heart to do the very thing that it was created to do the highest and the holiest expression of emotion in all of life when it is directed toward uh, God. And we are then doomed, if we deny our hearts this expression toward God, to live a life of emotional immaturity and, and frustration at best, and emotional instability and darkness at its worst because we will end up looking for love in all of the wrong places. We will be looking to others and things to provide us with the emotional satisfaction that only God can give. And then Paul says in verse 22 that in all of this, He says, professing to be wise, they become fools. Uh, Becoming a fool is the result of idolatry, despite all of our professions uh, of wisdom. The word fool here, uh, prepare to be offended uh, by this, uh, but the word fool in the original language, it literally means stupid. And uh, uh, so this is uh, known as clarity and we get we get our english word from the english word that we get from the greek word here that paul uses here is the english word moron and god doesn't say this for dramatic effect or to insult he is involved here by the holy spirit laying a case that he is life and death serious about this is not to offend but to awaken us and people uh, to the folly of idolatry, the worship of anything other than Him. And that's God's assessment, that it is foolish, stupid, uh, concerning the person who refuses to recognize that there is a Creator behind the intricacy, behind the interconnectedness of creation that is all around us every day. And man will convince himself that it is their wisdom that has brought them to that place when, in fact, it is because they are fools in the grand scheme of things. They are believing in a folly. Without a belief in the God of the Bible, our emotions, our intellects, and as a result, our entire lives end up being very badly misdirected, and becoming very, very messed up as a result, with tremendous and uh, and serious results in this life, and catastrophic results in the life to come. And the purpose for what I'm looking at, and we're looking at here in the exploration of these six verses or so this morning… If you sit here as a Christian this morning, for you to recognize, as Paul lays out what he lays out here, that you might recognize that what is going on all around us, all day in life in the United States of America philosophically, religiously, all of the things that are being spoken in every way that it can be spoken, related to God, the existence of God, the poo-pooing of the idea. But you notice what has had to happen for all of that to occur. There had to, first has to be the shutting off of the Word of God uh, from the public square, from schools, and so forth, and so forth, and then working so hard to keep his voice from bringing uh, sanity into the discussion. And this is going on all around us. And it's important for us to know that God has something to add to this discussion as well. And it is very, very powerful and very important. And, uh, And he gives his perspective on all of this. And we study it this morning so that you can safely navigate Uh, So much of the nonsense that is going on all around us today. The second reason that uh, we look at this this morning in a somewhat thorough fashion is that for you, if you sit here this morning in the privacy of your own heart, and you recognize yourself in what God condemns here uh, within these verses… You look at your life and you say, I don't believe and never have uh, believed in the God of the Bible, the creator behind this creation. And I have suppressed that truth in order to protect all of the sins that I wanted to commit that God was going to reign upon within my life. And instead, I do recognize that I've given myself, I haven't uh, escaped worship at all. But all I've done is now engaging in idolatry and I'm paying a terrible price in my life for worshiping all the wrong things in life rather than the one that I've been created to worship. And for you this morning to have this sanity to be spoken into your life in a world full of lies and God's invitation to you to leave the futility of the heart and the mind and the futility of life that is found in all of the places that you've been exploring and to let you know that it is the God of the Bible, your Creator, that you've been searching for all your life. And it isn't enough just to believe that He is the Creator and that there is a Creator behind all of this creation. But we come into relationship with that Creator God, with that God the Father, by putting our trust in His Son for the forgiveness of our sins. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they would love to pray with you to do exactly that and to begin the relationship with God this morning that you have been created for. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, I can't speak for how uh, all of this has impacted uh, all who have listened here this morning but I know that there are many, many, many who are like me who are so thankful for this kind of clarity in an absolute ball of confusion that the world is uh, today and uh, uh, philosophically, religiously, the, the mess that it is, the irrationality that is behind it, the casualties that heap up by the tens of millions, Lord, in the worship of self and sin and idolatry. And thank you for the clarity of your voice on all of this, so concise, so clear, so refreshing and so freeing. We thank you for it, Lord. We pray that you would use this time in your Word this morning to draw people that don't know to you this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this time as an equipping and a time of protection, Lord, of our faith in you and the world that we live in and the age in which you have called us to love you and to serve you. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.